Now I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, so grab a Bible and make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you would. It's not a big deal, but on the back of a bulletin, if you got one today, is on the bottom side of it is our annual focus that we're doing. And this particular year, 2023, we're looking at living out, loving God, and loving others. And what that means for us is three or four times during the year, we're wanting to emphasize the significance and importance of that. Um, we did that back at the beginning of the year. Um, we just finished up James, and I'm wanting to do that again uh, this time. Um, just a little bit of a recap. Uh, you don't have to turn there. Uh, you're welcome to, though. Matthew 22, we uh, mentioned this during our first message on living out, loving God, loving others. Um, Jesus was asked a question. They were trying to trick him, this particular guy, a lawyer. Uh, it was in the midst of other questions. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's a big deal. Um, sometimes we read Scripture, we recognize its truth, um, we understand that it corrects us and guides us, and yet we read it and aren't thinking about putting it into our lives, and we want to challenge our, ourselves to do that, loving God, loving others. Jesus' command, uh, commandment in John chapter 12 is this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's doing, but I call you friends. That's from Jesus calling us friends. For all, of, all, that, I, I, all that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, I chose you, that's a big deal, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that you should, and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in my Father's name He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Because of the significance of loving God and loving others, there will be spiritual attacks right here about loving God and about loving others. You'll be attacked, um, I'll be attacked, uh, it's a significant command from God. It's from our Lord as well. So we can anticipate battle here. Now, there can, be, there can be the temptation to justify why I'm not loving someone the way I'm supposed to, um, why I'm not loving God the way I'm supposed to. It's a spiritual battle. Um, it's where spiritual battles are going to take place. Now, I asked this morning if Carrie would come and give us just a, a brief testimony on an example of loving God and loving others that she's um, been able to experience, especially in the name of the youth. Just for you to know, Carrie has um, been leader of our youth for seven years, eight years, eight years. Um, uh, Cindy McLeod helps her um, getting ready to lead a group of kids to Noah's Ark. Um, and she has experienced that. So take it away. <laughs> well, if I get through this without crying, we're good because... Yeah, that's just where my love comes from. Um, we are taking 20 kids to the Creation Museum and the Ark Experience um, this Friday. Oh, sorry. 
We're taking 20 kids uh, this year to the Creation Museum and the Ark Experience um, next Friday. We'll be gone for five days. Um, there'll be five helpers that go. Um, the, the cost was significant, um, but the love of our church body um, made it so that um, some of the kids could go for, through your love and donations and letting the kids, some of the kids work for um, money to go. Um, we were able to reduce that way significantly for everyone across the board with um, a handful of them going for absolutely free. Um, so it was, it was just a really wonderful outpouring of the love that you guys have for our youth. Um, I'll tell you a real quick story. Um, it really just kind of bothers me. Um, we went to a wedding last night. And the music that they were playing at this wedding, the lyrics and the words are just really not, just not loving, okay? Um, that's what our youth is being exposed to. Right. We have to, we are the only people that can change that. And, and how our children see the world. If we don't do something about it, it's just going to continue to do what it's doing. So we need to stand up and fight for our children and fight for them to know and understand and love um, each other. And um, so thank you for doing that. We're going to have some really great bonding moments this week. And um, just thank you for loving our kids. I don't know if no. this is what Jerry was looking for, but this morning when I prayed about it, yesterday when I prayed about it, God just said, just trust me. I'll say what needs to be said. So I just trust him. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You pray about it. I'm good with it. <laughs> so that would be 20 kids being uh, exposed to the word of God. And that's because you have loved God and are loving on them as well. And I didn't mention to the, these two young men that I was going to do this. But what I find Significant and interesting is Hunter, who's up here leading worship, uh, made a commitment to Christ in a Bolivar camp. How many years ago was that, Hunter? Seven, eight? Well, if, if it's eight years for you, it would have been like seven or eight years ago, seven years ago. Uh, and so that's God working in his heart and continues to work in his heart, as well as Mike uh, is back here. And Mike prayed to receive Christ. Where were we at, Mike? The one down at, down at uh, um, Creation Science Museum? Okay, very good. So, and how many years ago was that? Like four years, five years, something like that? All right, very good. And so <laughs> five years, Carrie knows. Uh, just ask Carrie. So God uses those times. And so not only have you expressed your love to God um, by helping some of these uh, teenagers, I call them kids, by helping some of these teenagers get to uh, the Creation Science Museum, Noah's Ark, just to experience the Potter's Ranch and, and the love that's going to happen there. Um, you've expressed your love that way. I would, I would ask that you pray for them as well, um, that God has the opportunity that they have an open heart to hear him um, uh, away from all of the technology and, and I'm probably going to scare our teenagers here, away from all of the technology and the stuff and just focusing on uh, God and his creation and his word and his people and God, what is it that you want um, for me? 
Um, that's what loving God and loving others is about. Hopefully you've had an opportunity, doesn't have to be in a formal church kind of a context, to uh, shower your love on God because of your gratefulness. Uh, maybe love someone else um, in something that you've done because of your commitment and love to them as well as your commitment and love this morning, uh, to, uh, to the Lord. This morning's um, focus is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, specifically verse 5, I'm going to read a few verses around it just to get the context here in a second. But I want to read chapter 1 verse 5 in three different translations. Um, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a s- sincere uh, faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Another translation says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then yet another, the New King James Version says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. So he speaks of genuine God-honoring love, and he talks about three different qualities. That's what we want to do this morning, is talk about those three different qualities. But let's get the context of it and where he put that. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Let me ask you a question. Is at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons all in capital, capital letters in your Bible? Well, that's disappointing. All of the translations that I looked at, it had it in capital letters. Who has capital letters in that? All right. Wow. We're just going to move on then. All right. (laughs) I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, the these is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a a sincere faith, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They swerved, they wandered, and yet they had this self-imposed confidence about the things that they were saying and the things that they were teaching. In verse 5, we find a contrast to the different doctrine, those swerving, the wandering away in vain, the empty discussions by those who lacked understanding, even though they had a confident assertion. We find a contrast. The contrast highlights love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And this year of living out loving God and loving others, it's significant and important that we define love, not the way we think about it, but the way God's Word says it. And he gives us three qualities of what genuine biblical love here is, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. This is spiritual battleground. If there's somebody here or in your family or around your house or where you work, that you struggle loving with a pure heart, 
uh, a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's spiritual battleground. We have, because of God working in us, placing His Spirit in us at salvation, the capacity to love the way that God wants us to. We don't want to wander away from that, but we can't wander away from it. And so it's good every now and then to remind ourselves what Scripture has to say. This is the spiritual battleground. Love with its characteristics contrasted to the mishandling, erroneous, inaccurate focus of some that were in the church in Ephesus. Addressing this in Ephesus was Timothy's job. That's what Paul left him there to do. Okay, I want to quote something. Despite its rich histories, we need to hear this. Despite its rich history, the church at Ephesus was not spared from the onslaught of false teachers. Just as Paul had predicted, Acts chapter 20, when he prayed for the Ephesian elders. Paul penned this letter to Timothy to tell him to make every effort to halt the influence of false teachers and setting things right in the church. The opening charge of verses 3 through 11 set the scene for the rest of the epistle. Timothy, I'm leaving you in Ephesus because this is going on. There are people that are swerving away from, there are people that are wandering away from what genuine love is, and they're more interested in speaking about the oohs and ahs and the possibilities of what God might be saying somewhere in Scripture, perhaps, like genealogies and things like that. I want you to focus on what genuine love is. That's, a, that's an expression of our faith. In the church at large, not just Ephesus, the church at large, that includes our church, there is always a need uh, to address this. It's potentially always present. If it's not present today, it's just around the corner. There are going to be some who swerve, some who wander away, some who want to talk about some unique things that might not be the focus of what Scripture wants us to be, even though you might be able to find a phrase or a word like that in the Bible. Um, he says, I want to pull you back to a sincere faith that's expressed by love. Different doctrines, swerving, wandering from the truth happen. Imperfect love, inappropriate focus, which probably starts out very small, and then it grows, and then the next thing you know, somebody has wandered completely away from the faith, and they're taking others with them. Because God has an enemy, God's church has an enemy. Because we're the church, we're a church that wants to honor the Lord, that means we have an enemy as well. Some, listen to this, some from within the church wander and swerve. Some from outside of the church come in already wandering and swerving. They come in with immature or unstable focus, and even worse than that sometimes with bad intent seeking to, to destroy. They'll stray and seek to influence others with what seems to be spiritually intriguing genealogies and mysteries and the oohs and the ahs that don't focus on Jesus Christ but rather take our attention away. And we need to be very careful because most of the time it's clothed in God talk. There's a constant need for us to preach the gospel to others and to ourselves as well. Yes, those outside of the faith that are still in their sins so that they can understand the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that it's only by God's grace because of His mercy. Uh, it happens at repentance. God is the one who draws us. But also to ourselves so that we remember who we were and who we need to be con concentrating on for our spiritual strength. And that would be the, the Lord Himself as well. In verse 5, Paul reminds Timothy the aim, the goal, the purpose of his instruction what he had received from the Lord. The aim of our charge 
is love that issues or that springs forth or that pours forth or that flows from, love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I wanted us to talk about a pure, excuse me, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith just for a little while. As you and I seek, and I hope that you are, to live out loving God and loving others, verse 5 gives us three qualities that describe a believer, a sincere believer's love. That pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In my love for God and for others, if my love for God and for others does not include these three things, at best it would be a flawed love. At the worst, it might not be love at all, even though I say it's love. The very thing that's supposed to characterize us as followers of Christ, that makes this a big deal. The way I love others, which is an expression of my love for God. The first one is this, I seek, as I seek to live out loving God, loving others, there's a need for a pure heart. The wanderers and the swervers and the inappropriately focused ones don't have this. They don't have a pure heart. A pure heart, one that's been purified, that's been washed, that's been cleansed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul described there those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he said this, but you, you who have placed your faith and genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That happens when a person calls upon the name of the Lord by grace through faith. To as many as received him, John said, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It purifies my heart. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, spoke of, blessed are the pure in heart. That's the beginning of a pure heart. But just because my, because my heart was washed by God, let me use me as an example. Just because my heart was washed by God of his sinfulness on April 8th, 1980, and y'all know where it happened and all that kind of stuff. It was a mailman's Jeep if you're visiting. Just because, my, just because my heart was washed by God on April 8th, 1980, does not mean that my heart is as pure as it could be or should be or needs to be today. I mean, that was 43 years ago. There's a lot of stuff that can happen in 43 years that makes me swerve away, that causes me to wander away. And I still talk about God, and I still talk about Jesus, but my pure heart devotion isn't there, and I know that. You might not know that, but God knows that, and I know that. And we need to be careful that we maintain a pure heart, and we recognize it as a goodness and a grace of God, and allow Him to search our hearts often so that we maintain that pure heart. For me to swerve, maybe to wander, for the enemy to attack, the enemy will attack, and he will attack here because this is one of the things that's supposed to characterize us as followers of Christ. They'll know you by your love for one another. A pure heart God gave me in Christ Jesus needs to be maintained pure or repented back to purity when it's necessary. The Spirit of God can convict me. My response should always be humble humble repentance. That's who I am, Lord. That's what I've done. I recognize you died on the cross for that. I'm thankful for that. It's not an albatross that has to hang around my shoulders and and weight me down. I've been freed from that, and I believe that by faith. A pure heart that God gave me needs to be maintained pure or repented back to purity. And both the purifying and the maintaining of the pure heart are a gift from God. They're a grace from God. And yes, I must engage my will in doing that as well. Interestingly, in Scripture, this word pure can refer specifically to 
that which is purified by fire or by pruning. Sometimes even God uses my imperfections that bring about a situation where I have to be purified or pruned. It allows those impurities to come to the surface and then he skims off the dross, those impurities, so that I can have that pure heart. Being pure in heart involves, <laughs> involves its cleansing. It also involves my heart's focus. Not only does my heart need to be cleansed, April 8th, 1980 it was, and from time to time, especially when the Spirit of God prompts me, I'll just be still before the Lord and say, search out my heart, is there any wicked way within me? So it needs to be pure, but it also involves being focused, a focused heart. It isn't just that God cleansed my heart, and now I'm going to go after this, and I'm going to go after that, and I'm going to go after that, and oh yeah, God's part of that picture as well, but it needs to be a focused heart. Someone said, being pure in heart involves having a singleness of heart towards God. A pure heart has no hypocrisy, no guile, no hidden motives. Hey, who knows if your heart is being hypocritical? Does the person next to you? Maybe, maybe not. But you would know, and God would know, a pure heart has no hypocrisy, no guile, no hidden motives. The pure heart is marked by transparency and uncompromising desire to please God in all things. It's more than just an external purity of behavior. It's an internal purity of soul. It goes beyond mere religiosity to the depths of the inner man, a pure heart. That's where love has to be come from. Do you remember the story of Nathan confronting David over his sin with Bathsheba. He was king and was supposed to be out to war, and he wasn't that. He was married, as was she, and they weren't supposed to be with each other, and he blew it there. He tried to blame it on her husband, but that didn't work either, and so he had his life taken. And then he denied that it was him until David, excuse me, until Nathan came with a very clear story and he realized it's me. David didn't have a pure heart. He might have been God's. He might have been characterized as, he might have already written many, many psalms, parts of scripture, done incredible things for the Lord. But somewhere in there, he swerved, he wandered, and he got away from having a pure heart. Psalm 51 is an expression of his repentance. We're not going to read it all. But in Psalm 51, David included this in verse 7. Purge or cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. I want to tell you why hyssop in a minute. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David is repenting back to having a pure heart here, that by the goodness and the kindness and the door that God gave him uh, to repent and, and have that pure heart. Why hyssop? Hyssop was just a plant, but it was something that was used to dip in the blood. And when they had the Passover, they dipped that hyssop into the, into the blood of the animal and they sprinkled it on their doorposts. Hyssop was used by Moses to sprinkle the people and the book of the law. That would be the Ten Commandments. We find that in Hebrews chapter 9. David recognized that because of his sin and his ugliness that he needed a blood sacrifice. That it was blood that would take away the sin that he had. 
when we're not living the way God wants us to and we don't have a pure heart before the Lord, it isn't a small thing. It requires a blood sacrifice to get you and I back into fellowship with God. And, 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 and when we find ourselves there as believers, we repent back into fellowship with the Lord into a pure heart. When you're not a believer, you repent and believe on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how you gain a pure heart. The psalmist asks, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who, has a clean, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, Psalm 24. To live out loving God and loving others requires a pure heart. And I can't love God genuinely and completely without loving others. And I don't genuinely love others if I'm not loving God. They go hand in hand. They go together. That would be a violation of my spirit-enlightened conscience, which is the second quality of, of genuine love, um, that, that, there be, that there be a good conscience. As I seek to live out loving God, loving others, it requires there's a necessity for a good conscience. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I'm quoting, there's one word translated conscience in all the New Testament references, and it means a moral awareness a moral consciousness, an inborn sense of knowing what's right and wrong, an internal awareness. I am confident that all of us have that unless it's been seared. The young kids back in pre-K have a consciousness as well, as do the babies that are in the nursery and the kids that are down in, 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 uh, in super church, all of us have that. It's a, it's a moral awareness, an inborn sense of knowing. It's why a young toddler hides something when they're not supposed to have it. They, you don't have to teach them how to do that. They have something that they've been told don't have it before. They grab a hold of it. Mom looks at them. Dad looks at them. The next thing you know, they're putting it behind their back. They know that they've done something that's violated some law that's been given, whether it's God's law, mom's law, their own law. There's a moral consciousness. The conscience reacts when one's actions, thoughts, and words either conform to or are contrary to a standard of right and wrong. So our conscience can either encourage me and, and say I'm, I'm on solid ground, or my conscience can condemn me and say, Jerry, you knew better than to do that. And we both lived uh, in both of those situations. Seeking to love God and love others requires a good conscience. If my love is going to be complete and pure, I have to be able to love people with a good conscience. You know, when I started, started thinking about that, I got to think, what is my conscience have to do with me loving the person in the fifth pew, fourth person in? First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says it has something to do with it. I have to have a pure heart, and I have to have a good conscience if my love is going to be complete. And so at best, if I don't have a good conscience, my love is less than what it should be, or maybe not even there at all. And I'm not able to say which one it is for you. Um, we just have to be careful there. It requires a good conscience. Can we say, if I don't have a good conscience, my love for others is flawed, or at best, that's at best, or maybe even non-existent? I think according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we can say that. Not just a functioning conscience, but a good conscience. My conscience can function and condemn me all day long. 
it's functioning the way it should. The way it should. I'm doing something. I'm thinking something. I'm going somewhere. I'm, there's an activity that's going on that I ought to not be part of. And my conscience, my spirit enlightened conscience, is saying, "Don't do that. Don't go there." Jerry, what are you doing? Jerry, stop. 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 My conscience is working, but I, but it's not working. To, help, to encourage me is working to condemn me. And Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, says that my love for you isn't what it ought to be if I don't have a good conscience. A conscience that's functioning and that is encouraging me uh, rather than condemning me. A good conscience flows from having a pure heart. So these two go hand in hand. If I have a pure heart, I'll have a good conscience. When I don't have a good conscience, likely I can look backwards and say, you know what, my heart isn't pure because of this. A good conscience flows from a pure heart. These two qualities work together uh, for love. Question. Right now, today, 1045, who can discern if you have a good conscience or not? Can your spouse? Well, maybe your spouse. Maybe. Maybe. Person beside you can't, person in front of you can't. You can, and God can, every time, all of the time. We know when our conscience isn't clear, and God knows when our conscience isn't clear. You would know because your conscience either accuses you or it excuses you. Yes, you're doing what's appropriate. Yes, you're doing what's right. You're living by a standard that you have, or you're not living by a standard that's there. God knows because He knows every thought and the intent of our heart. And I know we know this, but it's good to hear it. The Word of God is living and active. This is just the Word of God, not God Himself. The Word of God, or Jesus, so maybe it is. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creature is hidden from His sight, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you know who knows if we have a good conscience? I know for me, and God knows for me. And you know for you, and God knows for you. And his word just has this, it's, a, it's an inborn thing that he's placed within every human being, so everyone knows. And then we have this spirit-enlightened conscience as believers, and man, does it work quick. And, and it I heard somebody say this one time. I thought, you know, you know that's exactly right. When I'm, when I'm convicted of doing something or thinking something or going somewhere that I ought to not go, and the Spirit of God convicts me, I've got about three seconds, or I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw in the towel. If I don't do immediate obedience, I find myself justifying and, well, you know, the goodness of God and the grace of God. And that's just a bunch, it's all true, but that's just me justifying. God knows if we have a clear conscience. David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous or wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. As you and I seek to live out loving God and loving others, we need a pure heart, and we also need a good conscience. So as I'm loving, I say this very tenderly. So listen with how tenderly I say it, maybe not the tone of my voice. If you gave funds or an opportunity for the youth to work so that they could go to camp because you recognize the significance and importance of them being surrounded by godly opportunities and truth, 
and yet you didn't have a pure heart, and you didn't have a good conscience, can I suggest that if I did that, or if you did that, our love wasn't as pure as what it could be? Might have been there, but it wasn't as good as what it could be. But when I have a pure heart and I have a good conscience and then I do that, we know that one's acceptable. We know that that's a, a representation of who God is, that that's consistent with the gospel and the Lord that we serve. The last quality mentioned in living out, loving God, loving others, a love with a pure heart, a good conscience, the last one mentioned is the imperative of a sincere faith, a sincere faith. Not a hypocritical faith, not a masked faith, no pretending to be faith or faith-filled. It goes beyond just having the right answers and saying that I'm filled with faith. That doesn't mean right answers aren't important. We need to know what Scripture has to say. But it's more than that. It's sincere, a sincere faith or a genuine, authentic, unassuming, heartfelt faith. A faith with a level of freshness to it, not an old faith. I don't have a sincere faith because on April 8th, 1980, there was an encounter with God. That was 43 years ago. For my faith to be sincere, there needs to be continually uh, having, I need to be continually having encounters with the Lord. A freshness to the faith that I have. It isn't that I'm always only pointing backwards, though that doesn't mean that pointing backwards isn't significant and important either, but that's not the idea. It's a sincere faith. In the negative, it's not a deceitful faith. It's, what, it's, not, it's without pretense. There's no tricks to it. There's no manipulation. There's no me trying to fool you and make you think, hey, look how spiritual Jerry is. Because you know better. Because you look in the mirror at your life as well. And we all recognize we need the goodness and the grace of God. And that we need to maintain that pure heart and a good conscience and, and maintain a sincere faith as well. Love comes from a sincere faith. Timothy had that sincere faith. His grandmother Lois had that sincere faith. His mother Eunice had that sincere faith, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Can I just say a word to grandmas and moms, even though this is a week past Mother's Day? You have, you have a powerhouse of influence in the lives of your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. That doesn't mean that you manipulate them into the faith. That's not what he, it's, it's that you have by your example just a significant influence for your kids and your spouse uh, and, and, and your grandkids. It's significant. Timothy had a sincere faith which was first seen in Lois and later in his mother Eunice as well. The opposite of a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith is a dirty heart, one that's stained with sin, one that's stained with questionable things, a guilt-ridden conscience, justifying why I do, where I go, what's going on, a hypocritical faith, something that's a masked faith. I mean, I might really believe in God, but that there's a freshness to it. It's a mask. There isn't any freshness to it. That's the opposite of what Paul is talking about. Timothy was tasked with charging those in the church in Ephesus who were displaying godless love, who had swerved and wandered away from it, to challenge them for a purity of their faith, a goodness in their conscience, and a genuineness in their uh, uh, purity in their heart, a goodness in their conscience, and a sincerity in their faith. These are all inner man qualities, aren't they? 
It isn't religiosity. This is the inner man stuff that's going on. And, and, and we might look on the outward appearance, but we know that God looks on the heart. The Lord doesn't see as man sees, Samuel was told. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on a heart. This will be a battleground spiritually because this is what we're supposed to be known by, loving God and loving others. There will be spiritual battle in my love for you and my love for God. God has an enemy. I have named his name. I'm his. Because he has an enemy, I have an enemy, as do you. There will be spiritual battle here. It might be that you love someone and try the best you can. You're, you're genuine in it. You've got a pure heart. You have a good conscience. You have a sincere faith. And that person doesn't choose to receive the love that you offer them. That's a challenge, isn't it? That can happen in your family. That can happen in your church. It can happen on the job. It can happen anywhere. What do, you, what do you do with that? It's not your task. Your task is to do and be who you're supposed to be as much as is possible with you. Have a pure heart. Have a good conscience. Have a sincere faith. Love as you can and then see if God might not, might not use that as, as an opportunity to reach somebody. Let's let 1 Timothy 1.5 remind us, each of us, and encourage us to ask God to give us and show us an opportunity to live out loving Him and loving others. Carrie gave a testimony. Wouldn't it be encouraging to hear another testimony in a week or two of, hey, you know what? I was challenged by loving God and loving others, and He gave me this opportunity. No focus on you. Look at the opportunity that God has given me. Shift the focus to Him, to God be the glory, um, because we're looking for opportunities like that. I want us to be challenged to do that. I want to be challenged to do that, and I hope you will be as well. What I want to do now is uh, I'm going to ask the teens that are going to camp and the workers that are going as well, if uh, they would come up here. And Daniel, can I get you guys to scoot down there and find your way and have a seat on the front pew, if you would. Come on up here if you're a teen and you're going to camp. Um, if you're a worker and you're going, come on up on that first pew as well. You can sit around the steps if you want to. If you play the piano, Terry would probably let you sit over at the piano. <laughs> no, <laughs> just come on up here and find a seat. Uh, Carrie, you mentioned you got 20 kids going. Not kids, 20 teenagers. Sorry, teenagers. Um, these are the ones that are going to camp. Uh, many of us have given. We've done that uh, as a church as well, so we're all involved in some way. I want to ask us to pray also. Worship team, I want to ask you to go ahead and come on up here. Worship team is going to do a closing song today. And this song speaks of God giving God the opportunity to write his story on your heart. And so I want to look at these teenagers and think about the ones that are going to be going to camp and ask that you would allow God to, the opportunity to write his story upon your heart. And then as soon as they are done, um, uh, Brian and Kirk are going to pray. But before that happens... I mentioned that Hunter is, um, God worked in his heart as a result of a camp. I mentioned the same thing happened with Michael. Um, Kathy has a story also, and I wanted her to be able to uh, communicate that, and then you guys go ahead and sing your song. When I was re reflecting about this song, and you guys getting ready to, to go, when I was 16, and that was a very long time ago, <laughs> I was going to a camp. I was at a camp, a youth camp. And we got everybody. We got to have everybody. Yeah. Awesome. And 
during one of the messages, the speaker who was speaking challenged all the teenagers and said, pray and ask the Lord to give you the name of someone that you will commit to pray for their salvation. And I thought, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And so I did. And the name he gave me was Jerry Tharp. I knew him from high school. (laughs) And B.C., before Christ, it was one of those never in a million years. And so when God put that on my heart, I thought, he needs somebody praying for him. I prayed for him. God was faithful to bring him to mind. That was before social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the stuff, you know. I know that's hard to comprehend, but God did all of that social reminding, okay? And he would put him on my heart to pray for him. And seven years later, we were set up on a blind date, and he had come to know the Lord four days before that. Only God can orchestrate that. And in this song, when this song says, is there room in your heart? When we commit to make room in our heart for him and ask him to order our steps, I had a lot of dreams and I had a lot of goals. But like I said, 16 was a long time ago and I have lived a lot of life since then. And his way and his dreams and his thoughts are so much greater than anything I could have come up with. And so as we sing this over you, I just encourage you, make room in your heart for him to write his story. Not your story, not what you think is his story. And then as we were practicing this song, this verse is powerful. When you you come as you are, but it may set you apart, when you make room in your heart and trade your dreams for his glory, that is what will set apart your life. When his glory, and as you submit to that, he gets to write what he wants. It's an amazing story. Oh 
upon everyone going on this trip. Pray for their safety. Lord, take care of them. But more than that, we know, Lord, that you created them, each special and unique in your eyes. And Lord, you know them better than they know themselves. You know their heart You know their struggles they're going through right now. You know their walk with you. You know them completely. You created them special for a special reason. As they go on this trip and as they travel, I pray that you will bless them, that they can grow closer to each other, but you will bless them and speak to them that they can grow closer to you and understand and love you better 
and understand who you are, but that you will provide comfort to them in all that they are going through. You will guide them in all that they are going to do and their next step in life. And you will just walk with them with comfort and strength and compassion and give them wisdom as to how to take this next step and where to walk through and how to walk through. You are an all-powerful, all-knowing God, and you know them, you love them, and you at this point want to touch their lives. Bless this time and bless them and everyone that's going on this trip. In Jesus' name. Father God, we just, uh, I pray for a hedge of protection as they go. I ask that you would uh, separate them from the world while they're there. Help them to listen. We ask that they would open their hearts and search for you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon them that it would be a mountaintop experience that lasts a lifetime. We thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we uh, thank you for each one that is here and those uh, that are not here today that are going. We pray that they would be a light to their families for what you show them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.